0: Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio.
1: With Heifers Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876.
2: Rather than books.
0: Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. Our featured guest on today's show is Jim Kelly, writing as J.G. Kelly, talking about his latest novel, The Silent Child. We'll also hear from Dorothy Coombson on her new emotional thriller, My Other Husband. And John Phelps talks about his latest crime novel, The Vulcan Who Got Into Print. We'll give you a proper introduction in just a moment, Jim. But first of all, welcome to Bookmark. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. People might know you principally as a crime novelist but this is as we'll hear a very different kind of book and you've changed your writing name to show readers that to jg kelly is the same then a different readership
3: it might be one of my problems but it might be one of my virtues is uh, i always found it quite difficult to stay in genre so whenever i was sort of writing the books Sometimes they kind of sort of set off in a slightly sort of different direction and I'd have to kind of either pull them back or I was never in complete control. I've always really admired those um, crime writers who can sort of produce 25 books in a series in which the characters always stay exactly the same and there's a nice different plot in each one. I've always struggled to do it. Something kind of sort of takes over. And The Silent Child, the, the latest book, I mean, I never set out to do anything. I just set out writing it and it turned into something else.
0: And it is a crime novel in a sense, but on a bigger canvas, isn't it? And the clues and in the investigation is bigger. So the crime writing skills were the ones you used, I'm presuming still. Yes.
3: Yeah, I mean, there, there are some in there. I mean, I think it's the real challenge with The Silent Child, you know, is that the historical background it's drawing on is, is the Holocaust and the Second World War. The huge... Elephant trap here was if I'd written the book and simply used those as kind of a backdrop to a story, the only way that I can really justify being in these places is to make sure that the plot really springs out of those events. You know, the people are motivated by the kind of feelings that, you know, I think that they might have had at those times. So it's not a sort of crime novel dropped into a different time it's it's a book that grows out of that time but there's a murder in it unfortunately you know there are 8 million murders in it and that that's the really tricky bit but it's not completely unheard of the idea of focusing on one loss one murder against the backdrop of hundreds of thousands it's sort of the way we are as human beings we sort of pick up on the individual and then lose the kind of historical breadth behind it. So, yeah, I wasn't really in control, is the short answer. Oh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, and yes, it's set against the Holocaust, so a trigger warning we should give. We will be talking about yeah. concentration camps and the Holocaust in today's show. But before then, let's have your first choice of music Puff yes. the Magic Dragon by Peter, Paul, and Mary. Why yeah. this one?
3: I love it. I think it's a perfect piece of music. And it really reminded me of children's favourites that used to run on a Saturday morning it's beautifully written. It always annoys me when people sort of say, um, oh, you know, I thought I might write a poem or I thought I might write a children's book because, you know, it's shorter and then it'll be easier. <laughs> and of course the shorter anything is the more difficult it is. But the choice in the lyrics of words is absolutely superb in this. The main character, little boy is called Jackie paper. You'd have to go a long time to find a better <laughs> name for a children's hero than Jackie paper. And I think there's a line about him and the um, the dragon uh, no longer being able to play on Cherry Lane. It's just so cleverly done, you know. It's, it's not actually the name of a lane, and you know why it's called Cherry Lane. You can see it, you know. It's just, it's all very, very spare. And, of course, it's very sad. So it has none of that sickening uplift of stuff that you get at the end of a lot of children's stuff these days. And actually, you know, children... 't need it they're really quite uh home with tragedy it's a very very sad ending to this uh, song with the dragons sort of slinking off into its cave and the um green scales fell like rain it's really very very sad but i don't remember that as a child at all you know i don't think you're oppressed by that as a child so i just think it's perfect
0: Puff, the magic dragon lived by the sea. That was Puff the Magic Dragon by Peter, Paul and Mary. The first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Jim Kelly. Jim is the author of the Nighthawk crime series and the Philip Dryden mystery series. His first book, The Water Clock, published in 2003, was shortlisted for the John Creasy Award. And he has since won a Crime Writers Association, Dagger in the Library and the New Angle Prize for Literature. This latest novel, The Silent Child, out earlier this year, marks a departure in his writing, slipping between the fictional Nazi concentration camp of Boric in 1944 and the early 1960s as the novel's central character, Hannah, uncovers secrets from her past. As I say, Jim, quite, quite different. I know there's crime, but it is, does have a very different atmosphere and tone to your other writing. I've kind of outlined generally what it's about yeah. there. How would you describe it?
3: To explain, the, the book originally sort of started in the middle. I went to a friend's wedding in Poland, and a group of us went to Auschwitz a few days before the wedding. And um, I don't know if you've, if you've been, but it's a, it's a very odd emotional sort of experience because your barriers are, are up before you get there. And while we were being shown around, uh, the guide was talking about an uprising in the camp. That really surprised me because it goes against the sort of cliches of um, the prisoners in the camps, as it were, being led to their deaths, you know, and and it being a kind of fateful kind of thing. And here you had a whole group of them rebelling, and I thought that was very interesting. And so I looked into it, and indeed there were rebellions at most of the camps and at the death camps in the East, and I thought it would make a great story to tell. And so I read um, survivors' accounts, I spent a whole wet winter in the university library in Cambridge, reading (laughs) accounts of the survivors. And then I just imagined being the main character, Leo, getting off the train and walking through the camp. That's all I wanted to do. So I just wanted to write a book that was him going from there to there. And there being some kind of story which would fill up the gap. When that was finished, a few friends read it. And I thought everybody thought this is a story worth telling, but there's something wrong. It was a good friend of mine, actually, who who really put his finger on it. He read it and said, um, what right have we got to be there? As a reader, and why are we there? Because otherwise, it's just us looking. I thought that was a really good criticism. I thought, well, what could happen is that someone survives the camp, which is my main character, Hannah, but she can't remember anything about it, and she can't remember what happened to her family. And so... I then, as it were, started the book again with Hannah, who survives the war and is brought to the Fens. In fact, and believes her family is, is um, perished in the in the um, camps. And then one day she gets a letter, an anonymous letter, saying that her father is alive. And inside the letter is uh, is a small yeah. chess piece. is a knight. Yes. Chest. Yes. She knows that this is something that was made for her by her father. So she sets out to find out what happened while at the same time we flip backwards and forwards to the camp and see what actually happened. And then the two storylines then come together. But the key thing is she has a right to know what happened. Therefore, that justifies the other thread of the book. And I think once that sort of happened, it seemed to work. The real problem, which I then, then discovered, was you can't have two threads to a book which tell the same story you're just repeating yourself from either end. And so the journey to the end is very different in both threads. They kind of investigate different sort of sides of the story. Hannah has to travel to Berlin with her, her lover, Peter, which is where most of the surviving witnesses are and where the paperwork is. And And so they begin to uncover what had happened to the camp and soon discover that someone wants to stop them finding out what happened. And the thing about Borak, the camp is that it's caught in a particular moment in time, which is when the Russians are arriving, the Germans are fleeing. You put those two things together and you've got a kind of dramatic space in which everything can sort of happen quite quickly. It really just sort of grew in lots of odd directions, this book. I mean, you know, it's been 10 years since I started writing it. I really didn't think we'd ever really get it published because I, I didn't think anybody would sort of see what I was trying to get at, if you know what I mean. So I was really lucky in that so I'm completely amazed that it's been published
0: (laughs) (laughs) and what what an astute friend to make that observation because the issue about books about this time period is they are going to be interrogated more closely aren't they as to to why we're there what makes this story different what does make this story different for you why does this story need to be told given there have been so much written well I suppose the,
3: the book's big idea is that Actually, this comes somebody asked me, we were gonna, I was going to write a book set in the American Civil War. and I remember thinking, can I write a scene set? And I thought, well, yeah, I could do that. And I thought, well, how can I do that? I've never studied the American Civil War. And then I thought, well, it's because I've read the Red Badge of Courage or Andersonville, or you know I've seen films. And so my r- real memory of that historical event is almost entirely based on art based on books and pictures and films. And it seems to me that is actually how we culturally really remember something, if it's in art. And Hannah, the main character, is is an artist. And so it's about how art can make us remember things which might otherwise get forgotten if they're just seen as sort of history. So that was sort of the big idea. And also to some extent, I felt that if you created these characters and put them in the camp and, and literally, you know, I was inside Leo, I was the father, and kind of imagine and go through that, you're a witness. You are witnessing, you're another witness who's saying this is this is what happened. I do think that we've probably got to a point now when art can help tell the story of, of the Holocaust. But I completely understand why there was a period of a long period when that wasn't a good idea because the facts weren't established or people denied the facts. But I think it's firmly lodged in this kind of historical memory. So I feel all right about writing about it like this, but I think you've got to be very, very careful and examine exactly what you're doing and the extent to which you can say something new. It's very odd that something that's fiction somehow makes you believe even more in the reality it's based on. That makes any sense. So the very fact that I can make fiction out of something implies that it happened. It's the next step.
0: It sounds like it was a very emotional journey for you, this book. I mean, you were reading all those testimonies, which must have been very harrowing. Has it been emotional writing this, and how have you managed to look after yourself and keep yourself sane?
3: <laughs> yes, it was. I mean, you know, I, I cried lots of times writing it, and probably still occasionally, you know, when I read it now, but I suppose I thought it was important and I wanted to believe in the characters. So for me, that the real people. Well, Leo is sort of partly me anyway. I mean, I've got a daughter, but I mean, I don't think my daughter is Hannah, but I can understand what that relationship is so that they're real people for me. And of course, Hannah is a survivor and i think that by the end, end of the book there's senses of you know redemption and some joy in there as well so it's not entirely uh, focused on death but the problem's with writing a book about a survivor is that they get between you and the people who died which is actually the the truth and so i sort of had to bring the dead constantly in and in fact there's a sort of recurring image of the um the dead following Leo and the family around the camp, they're always there. And of course, Hannah's motivated by the guilt of the survivor. You know, she's she's constantly asking, well, why am I here? Uh, Which implies that everybody else isn't, so that they're part of the book too. You've got to try and keep everybody on screen for the reader, otherwise they just start thinking that this is going to be the fun bit about the person who got away, you know. Making her forget what happened was very helpful because... Although, in fact, she does eventually, in a, in a strange way, experience things at first hand again, she's largely uncovering something in the past rather than experiencing it at the time. And Leo, the the father, is, is a very phlegmatic sort of character and um, he deals with it probably the, exactly the way I would have dealt with it and probably the way that an awful lot of people dealt with it, which was just thinking, how do I live through the next half hour? How do I keep in his case his children happy how does he keep some kind of sense of hope going so there's this constant thing of actually not telling the truth because they they can't tell the truth and so everybody's bound up in this thing of not really saying the truth out loud because that would be it's too much so and i think that's a real emotion you know it's i think it's true my agent at the time said you know if you, if you concentrate on just telling the truth it'll probably work
0: well, it I mean, you uh, you yeah. cried, I cried at the end of it as well. Thank you, Jim. Let's stay with emotions uh, just a, a moment longer. Dorothy Coombson is an award-winning global best-selling author whose novels include the Sunday Times bestsellers The Chocolate Run, The Ice Cream Girls and My Best Friend's Girl. Her books have been translated into 30 languages and sold more than two and a half million copies in the UK alone. Her latest, My Other Husband, came out in August, And when I spoke to Dorothy, I started by asking her to tell me what the novel's about.
2: My Other Husband, it's about a woman called Cleo. She's actually in the middle of a divorce from her husband, who she clearly still loves. She's a crime writer with a TV series that is coming to an end. But as the story progresses, people close to her start being hurt in the ways that she writes about for her book. And then she realises that someone's tried to stitch her up for murder.
0: And it's been described as an emotional thriller, which is a, a phrase I've not heard before. I quite like that, rather than psychological thriller or family noir.
2: Yeah, so I actually started to call my books emotional thrillers because thriller-type things, crimes, things happen in them. At the centre of it, there is a crime, but on the outside and running through the centre of the crime are people and the things that happen to them. And so I focus a lot on the emotions of the people, not just on the who done it of the crime.
0: And next year, Dorothy, marks 20 years since your first novel was published. And since then, you've sold two and a half million copies in the UK alone. Did you ever imagine when The Cupid Effect was published that here we would be 20 years Sweet, later? Actually,
2: 20 years later, I, I didn't actually think about that. I've always been very much, uh, oh, the next book, I've got to get the next book done. And I've got to do it as well as I can. I've got to make sure it's the best book that I can write at that point in my life. So no, I didn't actually sit back and think, well, in 20 years, I would have wanted to have sold this many books and translated to this many languages and been all over the world talking about my books. I didn't actually think about it beyond, oh, I've got to finish this book and then I've got to finish the next one. And in those 20 years, has your writing changed, do you think? Definitely, and also it's partly because I've changed the person, you get older, you learn more things about the world, you see the world differently. I started off writing romantic comedies, and then I spent a, a few books making people cry, and then I decided to, well, I wrote a book that became a thriller. I did not actually set out to write a thriller, The Ice Creamer Girls. The story led itself to a who it type thing. I got to the end, I thought, oh, I like doing this, I'll do it again. So I, I have carried on and they've got progressively more crime-like and, um, yeah, more kill, kill, kill. They're all <laughs> love, love, everything's great, love, love, love. And the subject matter's changed. What about the process for you? Has that changed? Oh, no, the process has never changed. It's always still a, a mystery to how I get to the end of it because <laughs> I spend a lot of time researching and then writing and then rewriting and putting things together. So. It hasn't changed in the fact that I don't do anything differently, but at the end of every book, people will say to me, how did you do that? And I'll say, I have no idea because, you know, every book is different and sometimes I'm up all night and sometimes I fall asleep and I have to wake up at two o'clock and carry on till dawn. So, yeah, it hasn't and has changed.
0: And do you have a reader in your head when you're writing?
2: Not essentially. The reader in my head is probably me, the sort of books I like to read and the things that I would sort of like notice if I when I finish a book before I send it off to my editor I read it as a reader and I have a look at it and think well if I pick that book up and I read it off the shelf I would be thinking well that's what's going to happen here or that's not plausible so probably the reader is the critical reader in my head that Edit the book before it gets sent off.
0: How do you manage to get that distance between yourself and your work when you're so close? Do you put it in a drawer and not look at it for three months or something?
2: Oh, I'd love to be able to do that. No, me, my deadline, (laughs) my closest to my deadline. I I haven't got time to do that. No, I, I actually just, I've always been able to switch off the writer part of me when it comes to editing and to just step back and have a look and say. Is this moving the plot along? If it's not, then it has to go. Much as I loved writing it, and I think it's like some of my best work, if it's not moving the plot along, if it's not adding to the story, then it has to go. So I've always been able to do that, partly because I used to be a journalist and partly because I used to be an editor on magazines. So that's what I had to do. I had to edit other people's work, but also make sure that it kept the essence of what they'd written and their voice and to make sure it's compelling and interesting and to make sure that it gives you value for what you want for the magazine. Does having all this success, does it bring a kind of pressure with it? I mean, look, maybe it's a nice problem to have, I don't
0: know, but having had such success, do you feel it when you're writing a book that you have to keep
2: it going? No, actually the pressure is like saying, I've got to pay my mortgage and (laughs) (laughs) and buy food. So no, it's it's not that that gives me pressure. I say this to other writers as well stop thinking about what other people are going to think of what you write. Just do the best you can. When a book comes out, if someone doesn't like it and they liked a previous book, I kind of feel like there's nothing else I could have done. I know that I've put my heart and soul into this book. And if you don't like it, I'm really sad, but I can't change it. So I stop thinking about other people's thoughts about the book. Because if I didn't, I would spend a lot of time going, oh, but they might not like this and they might not like that. So I shouldn't write that. So I try to put all that to aside and just focus on the task in hand, which is telling the story to the best of my abilities and making sure that it's something that people will want to read. You featured
0: on the 2021 Power List as one of the most influential Black people in Britain. GQ Style named you as a Black British trailblazer. Are you conscious of being a role model?
2: Oh, I don't wake up in the morning and go, oh, now today I have to role model. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't do things so that people can say stuff like that about me or say anything about me, to be fair. I am aware that if I can, I should try and help people. I don't ever think that you should get a bit of success and think, oh, yeah, great, I'm all right, Jack, and I'm not that sort of person. I'm I'm a person who, if I can help other people... If I can help open doors for people, if I can pass on knowledge or experience that will help them, I will do that. I no skin of my nose. And also, you know, I'm living in a society where everyone who becomes successful kind of just ignores the other people who are coming up behind them or, or on the same level as them that haven't had the same level of success. I don't think that's a great world to live in. So I don't spend a lot of time thinking I want to be a role model, but I do want to help people as much as I can.
0: And in 20 years, have you seen the landscape change for Black writers in publishing and in terms of the content of novels as well in the way that Black people are represented?
2: Yes, it has changed. It's changed quite a lot. When I was first started to get published, people didn't expect me to write romantic comedies. They were wanting me to write literary books, which are great and i love a literary book but it's not the sort of book i wanted to write or the sort of book that i regularly read and so i had to keep persevering and it's great to look around and see other black writers and authors of color coming up and writing all different types of books not just literary books but writing romantic comedies or scary thrillers or detective procedurals and also to see other people from different communities you know lgbtq plus and disabled communities I want more of that stuff because that's the world I live in and I want more of that to be represented in the literary world and change is happening not very fast and things happen very slowly in the publishing world particularly with around things like that but I want to be hopeful that the change is going to continue and there's going to be more and more different types of people's stories represented out there because that's the world we live in
0: and my other husband by dorothy coompson is published by headline we're talking on bookmark today to jim kelly writing as jg kelly about his novel the silent child jim you were mentioning earlier stereotypes and i wondered uh, how hard it was to write about this period of time without falling into stereotypes because there have been so many films and even tv programs and books the stereotype instantly springs to mind yes. on both sides of the equation and must have been there for you all the time. doesn't mean they weren't real, these stereotypes, yeah. but by playing into it, it makes it have less depth.
3: Yes, that's right. Often I, I've found that you know, if I create a character and it goes really, really well <laughs> and I sort of have my lunch and then come back and then I realise because all I've done is just pick a cliche off of the shelf That's why it's so easy to write, because it is just a cliché. You know, from the two ends of this, I mean, when I'm dealing with um, the Germans, the guards, the members of the SS, you have to pick a couple of characters and you just have to drill down into the character and try and imagine what is really motivating them, what is the truth at any any particular moment. You know, you can find kind of reservoirs of of truth there. Uh, And this particular one, which I think is camaraderie, The idea that they're going through something and they're going through it together and they're sticking together and they're not nearly as sure as they appear to be sure and also of course which i i thought about quite early and actually i'm I'm really sure it's true they're really scared and so that sort of underlying suppression of fear as well there are stereotypical characters within it. And, uh, you know, they're the dangerous ones. They're they're the psychopaths. You know, I don't shy away from those, but they're just, they're not particularly interesting as characters, you know, a psychopath's a psychopath. Uh, and what, what you want is the kind of nuanced character. The easy thing with Hannah was, I didn't realize this was a stroke of genius. The, uh, <laughs> is that if you start, if you grow a character literally from a child, that's a really big help because you, you haven't just met them, as a cliche you've taken them from one place and brought them into another place that helped a lot and i didn't try to do any of the things that would have led me into cliche so she's actually brought up as um as a catholic by the polish family that sort of takes one so the religion comes into it later but early on i could keep that to one side and she has very little idea of of her own background i mean she's actually just a placeless person and then she kind of grows in to the character which is where the cliche should be but she can't be a cliche because of where she's come from so that sort of helps unfortunately you know it's just it's just true that the interesting characters are are the people who are struggling so if you, if you can find people struggling in any situation then then you've kind of broken up that cliche i think
0: and in terms of making it real you we're mainly in hannah's head and we're sometimes in leo's head but we yes. also go into the heads of the other characters. There's an omniscient flavor yes. to it as well. Was that to give us an insight into what these characters wanted, what their inner lives were?
3: Yes. I think I think you have to you have to go in to really get to that point where they're they're actually struggling. It is very difficult because you, you don't want the whole book to swing around <laughs> and find ourselves looking at it from that point of view. It's not so much making a judgment about whether they're good or bad. It's just, are they interesting? You no, know, it's like Richard Third. You know, Richard III is a fantastic character. <laughs> he's not very nice, but he's, he's really interesting. Part of the book is set in Spandau prison in um, in Berlin. One of the people uh, in prison there was Speer, Hitler's architect. I and mean, he survived Speer and, and was perfectly sane when he left. And one of the things he did was he, he imagined that every year he would have a two-week walking holiday, and he would get all of the maps and work out what he would do on the two week walking holiday and then when it actually got to the start of the holiday he would there was a courtyard at Spandau where he was allowed to walk and he would go and he would walk the bits of the walk that he should be doing on that day and then go back to his cell and look at the maps and think about what sort of happened and and you know that's fantastically interesting and it's a really good way of him dealing with that it doesn't make him good or bad it just makes him interesting I think so it's finding those really kind of human details, differences about people. I think most of the people who are straightforward evil, I'm afraid are probably quite dull. They're not the interesting people. And I try to keep them to one side they're necessary. The whole of the Nazi apparatus would not have worked without them, but they're not the interesting bit of it. The interesting bit are people like Joel, who is actually a good man, but for lots and lots of different reasons, can't do anything about it.
0: <laughs> well, let's hear your second choice of music now, Jim, which is John Taylor's Month Away by yeah. King Creosote and John Hopkins. Why this one?
3: It's part of a, an album, Diamond Minor, which I think won the Mercury Prize. It's, it, it's a fantastic piece of music. It's got a kind of continuous tone and it's got a lot of ambient sound behind it. Like there's a lot of songs where you hear like a fire crackling or voices in a house. I think it's got an overwhelming sense of place because of that, you know, you can smell it, you can hear it, and the music is kind of laid on top of it. This is just a very beautiful kind of sea song. And he describes this sort of um, awful life of the fisherman. And it has that wonderful um, refrain, um, but on the whole, I'd rather be me. I, I just love that idea that it's, it's a rare thing for this guy to say. I'd much rather be me, and uh, I just think it's a great idea.
0: I love a coat that the sea from the swing park here at Roombee Beach to D. John Taylor. Star Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With
3: Heffers Bookshop,
1: the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876.
0: And our featured guest on today's bookmark is Jim Kelly, writing as J.G. Kelly, talking about his novel, The Silent Child. Jim, you mentioned earlier about the period of time that the 1944 part of the novel is set in yeah. this period of transition. And The 1961 part of the novel is also a fascinating period of time, which is set some of it in the Fence, but some in Berlin, yeah. at a crucial point in that city's history. So both places are in this moment of change.
3: If you want your characters to look sort of dramatic and you want them to be able to say that kind of heightened kind of language that people use when they're in a drama, you've got to put them on a stage. So, you know, I deliberately set it in 61 because that's when the wall goes up. And then I had to sort of get the plot around that idea. But I was very happy doing in Berlin. I've been to Berlin a few times. And I, I went, because I was a reporter, I went with the army in about 78 It was amazing, actually, because, I mean, I really liked East Berlin. I I didn't want to live there, but I really liked it. It was all noir. It was all grey. There was no advertising. It was very mysterious. It's got so much uh, sense of place. It's completely overwhelming. We talked the army into taking us into the East. I did what the characters do several times, which we went in in a a flag car. We went and had a slap-up meal in a restaurant full of Russian Soviet officers didn't go down very well because we were with two British officers in dress uniform and we walked across this restaurant in complete silence and were shown into a sort of side room and then we went off I wanted to go to an ordinary bar in Berlin and we found this bar on the edge of the city down some steps it could have been the third man I mean it was you know it was a cobbled street but as soon as we got in there it was pretty clear we were really not welcome and so we all did a a smart turn around and we went back to the Brandenburg Gate and had a beer there or something. But I thought I got a real feel for it and I thought I could write that. But also the wider book is about Hannah trying to find her father and without giving anything away, that is set against the whole concepts of East and West. The moment when the wall goes up and separates East and West is when Hannah's trying to bring the two things together. It added that backdrop where you can sort of get away with pushing drama much, much higher. You can turn up things because there's a general sense of drama of history around you.
0: And one of the themes of the book is, and there are many themes of the book, but one certainly seems to be justice and uh, what justice is. And you mentioned that character, Joel, because while there was this nightmarish scenario, slaughtering going on, mm. there was still some attempt at imposing a justice system against crimes. Is that right? I mean, you have yeah. a kind of military court going on at the same time as just yeah. massacre going on literally outside the windows.
3: Yeah, Joel's probably the only character who's sort of based on a real person. Uh, He was called the Bloodhound Judge and um, he travelled around the uh, concentration of the death camps and, you know, imposed SS law. The SS had its own legal code. I mean, that's what really drew me to the the, the whole thing, that this is how these people survived and this is how somebody like Joel survives. He's got a legal book and in the legal book it says that uh, soldiers in the camps cannot unlawfully kill a prisoner. And that is defined, that unlawful killing. You know, there are circumstances in which you, you must not do that. And he he prosecuted people for doing this.
0: Even though um, there were there were guest chambers in which yes. hundreds of thousands were being murdered.
3: Uh, and what he would have said is, that's because, you know, the Fuhrer says that that's what we should do. Therefore, that is the law. So I don't have to worry about that. But this is a bit where the law is being broken. So he's kind of hiding in that little sort of corner. He, I'm sure he felt that he was doing good. He did do a tiny bit of good, (laughs) but not against the bigger picture. And he survived the war and gave um, evidence at Nuremberg and then went back into private practice and was a lawyer into the 1960s. So for him, it worked. But in many ways, he is the baddie, even though he's a good man. That's, That's really the point. It's because people like him try to wriggle out of a kind of moral dilemma By holding on to things like that and looking the other way, that's how the whole thing got momentum. And as a point in the book, you know, whenever um, the German middle classes actually stood up against Hitler, it worked. The Nazis were absolutely terrified that the middle classes would turn against them. There are several examples of them immediately changing course as soon as they think that public opinion is actually going to sort of express itself. i thought that was an important thing to do in the book as well to show that you know people could stop these things happening it's just that they're human and they decided just to keep their heads down and somehow convince themselves that they were still doing the right thing
0: well thank you jim well let's continue with that theme i suppose of crime and justice and uh, speak to john phelps who's a crime writer john was an award-winning journalist at the cambridge evening news when he retired he began writing crime novels the Vulcan Who Got Into Prince is his fourth novel, and John told me what it's about. Well,
1: it was basically a who done it with a provincial newspaper office as, as a backdrop. And it's about a company secretary, a new company secretary, who was brought in to address a, news- a newspaper's ailing finances. He turns out to be very ruthless indeed, so much so that he ends up being murdered. And the private eye, whose name is Willard Shakespeare, he's brought in to try to find out who did it
0: you worked on uh, a provincial newspaper you worked on the Cambridge Evening News I uh, did work on
1: the Cambridge Evening News yes
0: so how much of your experience is in this book
1: a lot of journalists meet uh, some interesting characters on the outside doing that in the course of their job I've met quite a few interesting characters that I've actually worked with the first uh, interesting character was one I met in my first job in journalism which followed eight years in insurance so I uh, so I entered the profession as a late entrant and I was in the London office of the Sunday Post. On my very first day, this guy, one of the things he said to me was, the only people who become journalists are either mad or not tall enough to make the Foreign Legion. <laughs> and, uh, well, I happen to be six foot one, so uh, it uh, left me in no doubt about where that left me. <laughs> yeah, maybe he's got a point, maybe he's not so wide of the mark. <laughs> and I've, made, I've met some extremely interesting characters, both there and elsewhere. And some of the characters in the story are based on people I've known at the Cambridge Evening News and elsewhere, and some of the incidents that occur in the book are based on incidents which uh, I've either heard about or witnessed.
0: And this is uh, a crime novel. Why this genre? Do you agree it's a crime novel? Well,
1: it's a crime novel because The Private Eye interviews various various suspects, and uh, wife of the the, uh, murder victim, whose name is Hubert Weaving is nicknamed the Vulcan because of his appearance. It's not uh, not a Vulcan bomber, but uh, the character in uh, in Star Trek. There was a character called Mr Spock, his most distinguishing f- feature, I suppose, was was, was his ears, and he was also rather dark. In the so
0: f- why this genre for you, John?
1: I just had this idea about this fellow who'd be bumped off, and uh, Willard Shakespeare was a character who I had invented in earlier works, as I'd done, in short stories. I wanted to get him to do something. The idea of uh, of uh, this uh, particular person being murdered and how uh, various people could be uh, su- suspected of the murder just came upon me, I guess.
0: Because it's a very competitive field, isn't it? And it requires a yeah. lot of plotting.
1: It requires some uh, plotting, and, uh, and as for competitive, tell me about it. <laughs> and it's quite a job getting people to choose my work in in, in preference to all the others which are out on the market as well it's it's extremely competitive
0: because it's popular as well why do you think people like crime novels
1: that's a good question i don't think it was always the case i mean i I seem to remember that when i was a lot younger there was a craze about science fiction And that was possibly the number one choice but uh, these days it seems to be crime crime and more crime and certainly in newspapers crime sells newspapers they say
0: do you have influences are you influenced by any particular writer
1: i know who would love to say who influenced me and that was that was hemingway but I, I couldn't come close to matching what he could do
0: he's a very spare writer as well and i i guess with crime writing you can keep that spareness but Certainly there's got to be an intricacy of plot.
1: I hope I've uh, measured up in that respect.
0: What's next for you? What are you planning to do after this?
1: Well, I've got a collection of short stories coming out early, early next year. But also, there are a lot of characters who I've come across, and I, I realise I haven't, I haven't written about them yet. For example, on the Cambridge Evening News, um, there was a character, a rather straight-laced film critic, having seen a, a rash of X-rated films He wrote in his column, I'm absolutely sick and tired of having all this sex at the cinema. A couple of days later, a member of the public wrote in asking where he'd like to have it instead. I think you would be hard put to make that up, to be honest.
0: And I know you won't mind me saying, John, that you're no spring chicken. You're in your 80s, if you don't mind me saying. I know you told me earlier. So
1: I couldn't I couldn't give a bonkers, who knows. I'll be, I'll, I'll be 81 in about five or six weeks.
0: And you're still going, you're still writing. This is still a, a passion of yours. You still feel strongly, I can tell, about these characters that you've created.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I hope time won't run out.
0: And this character that you've got, Willard Shakespeare, are you planning on including him in future novels?
1: Probably I'll include him some somehow or other. Yes, um, I belong to a group of um, short story writers, um, sort of to, with the U three A, and we were encouraged to make up characters with certain names. I ended up with with Willard Shakespeare, and I've got him in one or two in one or two stories.
0: And the Vulcan Who Got Into Print by John Phelps is published by Troubadour. We've been talking on Bookmark today to Jim Kelly, writing as JG Kelly, about his novel. The Silent Child, published by Hodder and Stanton. Jim, what's next for you? Is Jim Kelly coming back or are we are we sticking <laughs> with J.G. for a while?
3: <laughs> we did the J.G. I mean, it largely, not, not because we would sort of change from crime thrillers to historical novels or whatever you want to call it. It was largely because of the content of the book. I didn't want anybody who'd read my crime stuff, especially the historical crime stuff, just picking it up thinking it was another one of those, and I'm just going to sort of go into it. So we kind of needed a clear sort of signal. Yeah, so the next book's called um, The White Lie, and it's um, a historical fiction. It's about Captain Scott, and a diary is is discovered which reveals that the story that we've got of Scott is not true and that somebody tried to murder him. And the person who's trying to find the truth is living in 1969 in Cambridge, at about the same time that the Apollo 11 lands on the moon. So you've you've got this expedition in 1913 setting off across this wilderness to the North Pole, and Scott saying when he gets there, God, what an awful place. And you've got Apollo going off to the moon and Buzz Aldrin saying, was it magnificent desolation? What an awful place. So the idea is to try and get these two expeditions to kind of mash up
0: what about the crime fiction will you be writing more crime novels or are you moving away from that
3: I mean if I could do two things at once, I'd I'd carry on with uh, the Eden Brook I really uh, love writing them but Hodder saw the um, the Silent Child and I just I couldn't turn down the opportunity really and so we did a lot more work on it before uh, it was published and and now I've got a, a third idea. for the. It, it's amazing, you know, as I say, I'm not really in control of these things. And um, <laughs> what I appear to be doing <laughs> is telling an historical story from two different time points. So in The Silent Charging, we've got 44 and we've got 61. In The White Lie, we've got 1913 and 1969. And then I've got an idea for the next one which is to tell a story that this will probably kill me the, <laughs> is uh, I want to tell a story that is half about 1066, the Bay of Tapestry, Battle of Hastings and the other half is D-day. So you've got someone going down the beach towards England and then somebody coming up the beach on D-day. and I want those two stories to somehow link.
0: Well, don't let that kill you, because
3: that sounds great. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> it sounds great. It's actually doing it, which is uh, <laughs> going to be the problem.
0: And a question we ask all our featured guests on Bookmark, what are you reading at the moment?
3: The way I sort of try and prepare for these things is to read as much as I can about the backgrounds. So you, you read all this stuff and you make notes and then you put it all in a room and you never open the room again. That's the way to do it, you know, is, is to just soak stuff up and then just hang on to whatever you manage to hang on to and then use it because as soon as you start pulling out history books and thinking oh yes no, there's that little bit there and there's that little bit there i mean it just becomes a jigsaw of the past it's just you know the fiction gets killed so i'm just reading a very good book actually it's called the norman empires it's a history book about the normans obviously with the norman conquest but how they began to pop up all over europe you know there was the norman kingdom in italy they ran the crusades They crop up everywhere. And you're just looking for those little things that will work in fiction.
0: Well, we'll come back to you in just a moment for your last choice of music. But a heads up that uh, next show, our featured guest is Hannah Jane Walker, talking about her memoir and study, Sensitive, The Power of Feeling in a World That Doesn't. It's all about feeling our next show, really, because after that, uh, we'll hear from Nick Humphreys, talking about his book, Sentience, The Invention of Consciousness. And... We'll chat to Virginia Routh Lynch about her memoir, Cloak. But we'll sign out, uh, Jim, with your last choice of music, which is Our Town by Iris Dement. Why this one?
3: I've always loved um, small towns. Uh, You know, I live in Ely. I think it's probably because I was brought brought up in London and, you know, all of the, like, Famous Five and all of the sort of adventure things for children. It always happened in a small town. I always loved the idea of everybody kind of linking up. And I don't really like country, but it's a very beautiful song. For some reason, country music really suits the fans. You know, if you're in a car driving a straight <laughs> line, our town is is sort of bang on the money. But also, it's incredibly sad. You know, it's got that refrain, um, "Hang on to your lover because your heart's going to die." There's a sort of pool of sadness over it. But she's she's still in love with the town.
2: And you know, the sun's setting fast, and just like they say, nothing good ever lasts. We'll go on.
0: Bye, but hold on to your love because your hearts bound One Cambridge 105 Radio.